continue in our short journey in this short letter. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 2. Well, I'm going to start in verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I do not lie, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let also a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this text is one of those texts that if you were to go out and find commentary, you could find it. This is not obscure, yet grammatically speaking, there's some trouble there toward the end of that text. And it's almost as if Paul just changed gears. It's almost as if he changed gears. But I'll, I'll say this to you now. You hear me say this every single week. For 11 years, I've said this just about without fail. You must read your Bible. Read it. Not the verses not the commentaries, not the theological systems. Those things are additives. Read your Bible. Because if we're not reading the Scripture, not your study Bibles, not your footnotes, not your favorite preachers, your Bible, if we're not reading the Scripture purely, we will not understand it. The means of grace by the Spirit of God that teaches us the truth and settles our hearts to believe that which is taught to us comes through the Word of God alone. And then understanding and working and growing and all of these things are things that we do as the church as we work through things together. But the Word of God must be in us. The Word of God must be in our hearts and in our minds. And beloved, I have not touched the Scripture in my lifetime the way some people have in theirs. I have not studied the Bible nearly as much as some people have studied the Bible. But in that same sense, I have probably read, touched, and studied the Bible more than a lot of other people. 
So it's all relative. But I'm willing to bet that at the end of the week, that the average Christian, the average working man and woman, the average teenager, the average child probably spends about six minutes with the scripture. Two minutes looking for it. Two minutes figuring out what to read. Opening up, reading a few passages, going, oh, it's time to do something else. Now, and that, and that about the way it is. And now we don't have to look for it anymore because we've got the app. We've got the apps. We can just look, look, look. But on the way to the Bible app, the social media pops up. The emails pop up. The text messages pop up. Everything else. What's the point? The point is that the apostles drove the point home that we must be in the word, that by the word alone, the instruction to this elder, as we get into the second letter, we'll see that the the scriptures are the final court of arbitration. They are the final and full highest authority above all things, and it is the authority through which we filter anything else we learn, think, or discuss concerning the revelation of God to his people. And the reason that it is important is because we want to learn and the other reason it's important, there's a thousand reasons. You ready? That's number two. Number two is that without reading the scripture, we will not understand it in its context. And thirdly, some people don't even know what that means. What does it mean in context? As it's written together. Paul did not write chapter two of this letter in a vacuum. First of all, then. Therefore. What does that mean? I use the cookbook analogy all the time when I'm thinking about how we read. We don't just stick our finger in the middle of a cookbook, open it up and go, and then stir. And just in the air, just, I'm cooking. No, we'd, we'd get some professional help if we just started whisking the air. Or stirring our face. <laughs> or the books on the table. There's a context in which we follow the instructions of everything. Lord help you if you ever have to put something together, like if you go to Ikea and you, you know, you get these incredibly easy to follow instructions. No. You just don't know what to do. So you look at the pictures. The pictures aren't, aren't correct. They don't make sense. But you don't go into that thing and you just flip it out like this. And, you know, it could cover up in the cold weather with those things sometimes. They're so big. And, and you don't just go in there and just find the first tangible word and go, ah, bolts. All right, let's just get all the bolts and glue them together in a pile, put all the wood in there, stomp on it. You can't start in the center of things and understand the process. And you may even be able to, for example, like a Lego set, put together a particular spot or a particular thing in the larger scheme, though, if it's not in the right order, it won't go into the main project. If you're not reading the Bible in its totality, if you're not reading the letters to Timothy as a letter, you're not going to understand how the whole thing fits within the project. And beloved, that's where all, all biblical error comes from that practice. All the nonsense and the silliness and the foolishness and the knuckleheadedness and the dumbness and the so-called intelligence, all the hubris, these people who had confident assertions about what they knew, they weren't reading the scripture. 
They were holding on to a particular truth that they found appealing or that they were even correct about and then they stood upon it, built upon it, developed their own philosophy around it and their thinking was not filtered through the foundation of what is truth, the Bible. Therefore, they ran sideways and we all do it. We all do it and we all do it this very moment. And this text, I do not... I do not kid you, and I won't tell you who because I don't want you to go look at it, but there is a commentator from the mid-20th century who has 62 pages of commentary on the first half of the sentence of verse 15 of of 1 Timothy 2. And I found one reference (laughs) that the footnotes were three pages just in dealing with verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly. And I have seen volumes. And I mean not only commentaries and sermons, but series and workshops built on verse 12. When in the scope of things, Paul's not emphasizing that hardly at all. He's emphasizing something else. So let's back up and ask our question. Ask a question. What is this letter supposed to teach us? This letter is supposed to teach us what elders are supposed to know and do. In the context of keeping order, unity, peace, and service, when All heck breaks loose when people start to act ugly and want their own way, whether it be myths and doctrines, genealogies that promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. And the reason that he wrote the letters to begin with is so that he could charge Timothy to charge the church to love one another. Is that what you, you've heard? Beloved, we ought not be prescribing to historical traditions of labels and theological ideologies that are not meant to be understood in the context of the letter. When we have hundreds of pages written about a particular passage that is disconnected from the intent of the letter, it is wrong. Now, could some of it be right? Yes, because a stop clock is right twice a day. You know that old adage. But we don't go there and then come back and say, Aha, now I know. Don't listen to James Tippins and say, Now I know what this means. Just like people think they know what Ephesians 5.22 means. Wives, see every man in the room smiled, you know. Submit to your husbands in all things. So how do we read the Bible in America? Misogynistically sometimes. In a patriarchy sometimes. Egalitarian hermeneutic, for those of you who understand the different systems. The complementarian hermeneutic. The feminist hermeneutic. 
You're like, what? Good. I hope you said what. Because that's unbiblical crap. It's trash. It may be the where you've come in the context of what you think the Bible's taught you, but that ain't what Paul had in mind at all in teaching this or writing this. He wants to show the elders how to keep peace and unity and harmony. Preaching of this text, I can give a lecture and teach you like a seminary professor, which I could enjoy. So you can make good on the test and write your papers. Or I can be your pastor and I can preach the Bible according to how it should apply to our lives as a body. And then call you and command you according to Christ to fall in line according to the things that the word of God teaches me to tell you. There's a huge difference. Unbelievers can teach lectures 100% accurately. Don't believe me? i got a lot of professors in my lifetime who confess to be atheists, who nail the doctrines of grace, and you can't argue against them. It's subject matter. Subject matter. Anybody can argue subject matter. But God's word is not about subject matter. It's about the subject, Jesus Christ. The Lord Almighty, the creator of the world, who out of nothing put everything in order. Out of nothing separated light from darkness. Out of nothing called life into being and created all life according to its kind. This is the gospel message. It's not a science journey. And the church should be instructed to get their biology right. Because the Bible says, no, the church is instructed to worship God because He is the cause of it all. And if we don't understand that, we don't know how any of it fits into the project of the whole. The scripture, individual writings, thousands of different, over thousands of years, preserved one message. Paul wants us to see what elders are supposed to do so that I don't get to tell you what my job is. You get to check if my job is being fulfilled. And I'm ahead by a year because when we get to 2 Timothy, when, when Paul tells Timothy... talks about, you know, Janus and Jambres, or Janus and Hombres, depending on how you want to say it. As they oppose Moses, there, there are men continually to oppose the truth. And part of that truth that Paul, at Corinth, and, and, and in Galatia and other places, he says that some of the truth that you're opposing is the instruction that I'm telling you to do. Because if you believe the gospel of grace, then you'll obey the apostles of grace. Perfectly? No. But you can't say, I don't have to, and I will not do it. You can do that, and it doesn't stand, it doesn't change your position before the Lord, does it? Just like when we were young, we could stand up to our parents, and I'm not, I'm not, and we're still a child in time out. Or with our bottoms torn up. (laughs) Or whatever else the discipline might be, the correction. 
But Paul reminds Timothy, these men will not get very far because their foolishness will be plain to all. Their continued behavior and their lovelessness and their abuse of the word of God and their myopic ignorance will be plain to all as it was with these two men who opposed Moses. What's he talking about? Don't worry about these types of people. There's an order in which God, through Paul, is commanding the church to live under, and that's why Timothy received these letters, so that the elders of the church will know how to keep order. And also, he wrote to Titus in the same manner. And then he goes on to tell Timothy, you haven't done that. You followed my teaching. This is, this is a year from now. You've followed my conduct. You've followed after my purpose as a, as a preacher of the truth. You've followed after my faith. You've imitated my patience. You've imitated my love. You've followed after my rootedness, my steadfastness. You've also shared in my persecutions and sufferings. Because you remember Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. But I endured these persecutions, Paul told Timothy. Because from them all, the Lord rescued me. Did the, did the Lord keep him from them? No, the Lord brought him out to continue to serve the church. He did not die. And then he tells Timothy, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, you keep doing what you've learned. And you keep and continue in what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from as a child, when you were a little boy, you were acquainted with the sacred writings, with the holy scriptures, with the Old Testament as we know it. And these things are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, and profitable for the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then I command you before God in the presence of God Almighty, young Timothy, and in the presence of Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the judge of the living and who is the judge of the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, I command you to preach the word. To teach the scripture to the church. To be ready in season and out of season. To reprove and to rebuke and to exhort. How? By banging the pulpit, stomping your feet and yelling real loud and getting real slobbery. No. With complete patience. Through teaching. So a sermon may sound like a lecture, but if it instructs us, it's, it's, te it's teaching. It's giving us something to know and giving us something to apply and giving us something to... And sometimes the application is just being still and being at peace. And sometimes the application is to stop acting like a knucklehead. Sometimes the application is to be a better steward with your time, money, and body. Sometimes the application is to learn to love your neighbor a little bit instead of being so selfish. But it's all rooted in the gospel. It's all rooted there. 
And in Paul's day, he goes on to tell Timothy later in chapter 4, 2 Timothy goes on to tell him that there's going to be a time where people are not going to endure sound doctrine. It was then, and it's today. And there are a lot of friends of ours and friends of yours and them and the cousins and all and, and everybody else. And, you know, there's a lot of times we find an affinity in a particular small place of interest in a theological way or a biblical way or an application way. And then that thing is all that anybody ever cares about and they don't want to hear anything else related to living the life of faith as a body, as a family. Having a large family is very difficult. Dozens of loads of clothes a week. Double-digit dishwasher loads a week. Why you got 30 plates? Because sometimes we don't wash them fast enough or we have to eat again. You only need five or seven or however many people lived in my house. It's, it's a lot of work. Where did the shoes go? Wherever they want. You see. Where did the dirty clothes go? That's the new carpet. There's order that is required when you live together. And Paul's writing this instruction about order. This letter is not to the society of humanity. This is not a letter written for society. This is not a letter written about how the world ought to operate in the context of understanding everybody's place. This is a letter that has already taught us to remember the gospel, that anybody who devotes themselves to outside and peripheral things need to be taught to stop and to be quiet and to be at peace and to learn. And is that taboo? Shut up and listen. See, Paul doesn't say it like that, does he? He's like, please, just be quiet. Just listen. Be submissive. Be humble. Be calm. And then he talks about the, the first thing that the church needs to do, Elder Timothy, you need to teach the church and you need to know this. Charge people to be quiet and then tell them that they must pray. First of all, then, I urge. I demand. This isn't a recommendation. Paul is saying, you're going to tell the church that they need to be praying, and they need to be praying according to the will of God, which is good and pleasing in his sight, praying for all types of people. The good, the bad, the ugly, the rich, the poor, the sweet, the sour, the young, the old, the kings, the paupers, everybody. Pray for them. Don't just pray for yourself and those around you and the people that you like and the people that get along with you. Pray for everybody. Pray that we would live a life of peace. Why? Because prayer, what's the key here? Listen to this. The key here is Paul is teaching that the church must live and the elders also must live in a state of humility before the Lord. It's hard for men in America to be humble. And we can say, oh, you know what? I'm just really humbled by that. It's typically a humble brag. I'm such a strong, humble, humble guy. I'm so powerful in my humility. <laughs> you see? 
And we don't see it because if we saw it, we'd be ridiculously wicked if we kept in it. We don't see it. We're deceived by it. Humility. Prayer is the foundation. It's the baby steps of humility. Instead of doing something, we sit still and ask God. Oh, I can pray. I can pray like a man. Oh, God, burn their heads. I mean, you know, WWF, NWA, whatever the new initials are for wrestling, if it's still on. That's the way most men, I mean, you know how full the churches would be? We'd all have to, like, wear chains and, uh, what do you call that stuff? The ammo and chains, the link ammo. we just have to wear it just to look bad enough to come to church. If, if we all had prayer meetings that were imprecatory, bring down the fire in prayers, you know. Have to wear leather chaps just to get out of the car. To stand the heat of such fervent prayer warriors. That's not what Timothy tells the elder. That's not what Paul tells the elder Timothy to do and to teach the church. He says, pray that we may live a dignified, quiet, and peaceful life. That ain't manly. I don't want to unload the dishwasher. We don't need to wash the dishes. Let's shoot them and buy new ones. I mean, you know, that's what we think in the church. That's what we feel in the way of America. We are kings of our own kingdoms but yet we owe taxes to everybody. So, I mean, you know, what in the world is going on in the church? Disunity, discord, frustration. And men get aggravated. Men get angry. Men get even. Men stand for God. Only Christian soldiers. You remember that song? I remember singing that thing when I was barely old enough to stand. Marching as to war. Only problem with that song is it didn't have cannons to go in it with the organ. 1812 overture. Slide over. Let's do it. Give me my gun, my Bible, and my axe. Got to have an axe. No, prayer is humble. And we've already taught about prayer. We've already seen the prescription for prayer that Jesus gives. And now we're seeing the application of prayer and this command for the elders of the church to make sure that when things happen in the church that people pray, not talk. That's why the emphasis on quiet, on calm, on being to yourself. It's a great evil when people share information about other people that is not glowingly edifying concerning those people. It is a grave evil. It is the gravest evil of all in the church of Jesus Christ. Because most behaviors can be noticed and corrected a lot simpler, but gossip and chatter, whoo, it's tough. And what is it, new, what is it usually rooted in? Anger. Well, what's the opposite of anger? Submissiveness and humbleness and peaceableness and all these other words that I'm using incorrectly. Keeping you on your toes. Prayer and humility is good and pleasing. And when we are learning the priority of prayer, we pray for all those people in our lives. So we can benefit from God granting divine peace among them. It's for our good. We also see that Paul is teaching that humility is necessary. We can't control anyone. 
We can't control our own attitude sometimes. How are we ever going to control a faction in the church? How are we ever going to change things and agree on how it should be changed and dealt with? That's the beauty of the scripture is that it gives us everything within the boundaries of what is good and pleasing to the Lord. And in that, it is good and pleasing for us. We can't control the government. <laughs> so what are we talking about as much for? We need humility, not activism. And notice I'm not teaching passivism. There are times we need to say as citizens what needs to be said, but once we've said it, we've said it. Shut up. You know? It's like at the football game when the cheerleaders run out and everything and they got the big flag and they're running with the flag. You know that guy? It's always a guy because the flag weighs 300 pounds. I mean, it's, you know, he's running. He doesn't stand out there and flag that thing during the game. Knocking his own teammates down. Hey, got to get our banner out. Get off the field. You've already shown your banner. We know. You hung it up for all of us to see. You got a t-shirt made, a hat, glasses, everything. It's all over. You tattooed it on your face. We got it. It's a joke, but an application. We need to be humble more. We need humility because of grace. Jesus humbled himself. The God of the cosmos humbled himself. And we can't. He needs us to stand up for him in a fleshly way. No. We have humility because of grace. It's this priority of humility is the point of this letter. It's, it's about order and humility and sensibility. And we have humility by, by the gospel. We're to pray for gospel peace. We're to pray for God to grant salvation to all people. Now, we don't have to read in and tell God every theological nuance that we have come to understand. God, we know that you won't say but these particular ones. So we're going to pray for them for not these. We're not God. We're not God the Son. We don't have to be theological in our pleas to the Lord. We don't know. His will be done. We know that all who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will come to know the truth. But is it an error to pray for everybody that we know around us to be born again? No, it's actually commanded of us. Because what does that do? It changes our evangelism, doesn't it? See, the evangelism of, uh, of, of America, the evangelism of the world, the evangelism of the cults, it's all about what man can do to be saved and what we can do to encourage them and what can happen and all the processes and the manipulation and the decisions and the will and all this other kind of stuff. But yet the scripture says that God has sovereignly saved his people. So we are able to know that God is sovereign in even the smallest and most disastrous details of our lives. And we should pray for his will to be done. While we do that, which is clear to us as his will. We don't have to pray theological prayers in order for God to get it. Oh, man, I, I just didn't know what they wanted until they got that correct. I'm so glad you prayed it that way. I wasn't thinking that way. God is not waiting for us to get it right. We pray for God to grant repentance and faith to everyone who hears. And he will surely bring his own to the truth. 
We shouldn't read into everything because of our fear of a lack of sovereignty. This priority of humility is the point of this letter. It's by sovereign election, sovereign grace. The Gentiles, all peoples, no respecter of persons, and this includes men and women. Ah, now you see the context of Paul's writing? Pray for all people everywhere that we may live at peace, and we're going to live at peace as the church in this way. We're going to pray for them, and then we're going to go and do this in the worship services, in the assembly. This is about elders teaching the church what an orderly gathering is all about. The roles and responsibilities of order which puts us constantly in the focus of God's sovereignty which always helps us to stand in a place of humility. I can't repeat that, but there's the conclusion. So then we have humility in the commands of what God has appointed, what God has called, and what God has required. Now, there would be a good outline, but I don't teach by outline, so you can write it out. I desire then. Verse 8. Here's the introduction. Verse 8. I desire then. Therefore, see, this all fits together. This isn't Paul changing gears. If he changed gears at all, it was that parenthetical that he talked about the gospel and the mediator. But there's a point for it. Because God is the God of men and women. God is the God of Jew and Gentile. God is the God of male and female. God is the God of children and adults. And I hate to have to say this continually, but there is a a faction of people that I have come to know who don't believe children can be born again. They most certainly can be born again. And many of them certainly have been and will continue to be. So here Paul says, I desire. And when Paul says that, he's saying, I command. He's not saying, this is what I really want. I want the floors and the sofas and the, I want to change the paint. No, 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 no. This is what Paul is telling Timothy to command of the church. This is not moral instruction. This is not practical instruction that is isolated from the context of the scripture. I desire that in every place, where's that at? Not just Ephesus, but everywhere that we have planted churches, that in every place, And he gives two distinct people groups in the context of the order of the church. Who are they? Male and female. And in this text, he's talking about adults. And most importantly, most scholars would say in the grammar, he's talking about married couples. But either way, let's take it for adult men and adult women. And this isn't all-inclusive. He's not talking to them. He's not teaching the men and he's not teaching the women. He's teaching the elders to teach the men and the women. And he's saying because of all this discord, because of all this frustration, because of all the stuff that's going on in the church, there are two things I want you to make very clear to the men and women of the church. So that they may be humble and at peace in the context of God's sovereignty over all of this, that he purposed it all, but that we maintain a sense of order and a sense of peace that reminds us of the gospel, that reminds us of the creative power of God, and that helps us to stand in a place where we are not in despair. 
And I'm just going to go ahead and say some things that need to be said that aren't part of the teaching. But misogyny is sin, beloved. Men ruling over women as subservience is sinful. Anyone thinking that women are lesser beings is sinful. Period. Ruling over our wives thinking that they're our property is wicked. Because we have the instruction outside the assembly that the body of Christ submits to one another in all things. And what is the greatest brother or sister except our, our wives and our husbands? The first relationship. As a picture of the gospel, see. This is an orderly gospel grace instruction relating to the worship of God's people, to the worship of God by God's people at the gatherings. And this is only instruction concerning, concerning the gatherings. And it's given due to the matter of false teaching and the division that was created because of the false teaching. Paul is giving order to the assembly and he's showing the gospel of unconditional grace, sovereign and free, as the picture of order. Let there be light. The light was good. God separate. God shines. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior, the Creator, God, the Redeemer of men and the Redeemer of women, of all tongues, of all nations, of all tribes, of all positions. And we see the creation again. If we go to Ephesians 5, which we talked about a little bit last week. Maybe that was the wedding that I did. Uh, yeah, sometimes it all runs together. But we see Paul saying that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ submitted to the Father and became nothing and died and was crucified and hated for the sake of presenting his bride holy and blameless and spotless. In the same manner, husbands, love your wives. Laying down your life, your desires, your power, your will for the sake of your wives. Isn't that oxymoronic in our culture? Hmm. We ought to worship with all humility, revealing the picture of Christ in the church, just like marriage does, and that's where he goes. Because what's the foundational substance of the church, the husband and wife? There's no such thing as the singles church, right? You've never seen a church full of singles, have you? You have, now they're all married. That's what they do. So in this structure, we want order, we want to understand the picture of the gospel. We want to be able to trust in God to deal with this without our festering it all and making it worse. So let's get our worship services in order. He says men should pray. Are women supposed to pray? Absolutely. But right now he's specifically dealing with two particularly obvious things that happen in the church. And he's saying men should pray in every place of worship, every gathering, and women too. There's not a qualification of an elder that's not also a requirement of every Christian member of every church in the world. In the attitude and the heart of things, and in the practice of things. 
Lifting holy hands. Hands of grace. Justified by the blood of Jesus. Surrendering to the sovereign order of God's glorious grace on display in Christ Jesus, in the church, and in the home. This is his body, the church of Jesus Christ. And no one is above another person in the kingdom of God ever. And what does he say? No anger. No quarreling. No frustration. No backbiting. No debating. No bickering. No suspicion. No assumption. Mind your business, men. Mind your business. And women, he'll tell in another letter, mind your business. He's not picking on men and women. He's not upset about these things. He's showing the gospel. He's not even commanding it of them. He's telling the elders to make sure that they teach it rightly. This is where our hope will come. There's never a time to get into the business of others or to begin to call out the sin of others where there is not a God-given instruction on how to do so and why and when. The elders are required to be involved in every bit of that because they must maintain the sense of order and peace and understand that patience and teaching and long-suffering, I know I'm being redundant there, needs to be the, 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 the stream through which all of this stuff is handled. Because if we don't do it according to the Scripture, it's always going to end in disaster. It's always going to end in divorce. It's always going to end in being kicked out of the garden. See the picture? Now you know where Paul's going, right? Because he goes there. We heard it already this morning. The men in Ephesus wanted to be right, and they were not quiet about it. It's the actions of these people who wanted to be right, and they weren't quiet about it. He's telling everybody else just to be quiet. He said, you know what? When we get together, y'all need to to put your hands and surrender. That was a symbol of surrender. It was a symbol of offering up a plea to God for grace in the Old Testament. Hands. You prayed with your eyes open. You looked at the heaven. You raised your hands up. This was the posture of prayer in the first century for Jews. And for subsequent believing Jews, Jewish people. Live holy hands. This is not an instruction of, you've got to raise your hands. They've got to be holy. Oh, those jazz hands, sorry. What do holy hands look like? I mean, uh, no. Pray, being justified by the blood of Christ. Reach to your Father of, in front of whom you have boldness to go because of the throne of grace, because of Christ Jesus. No one is above anybody else. So put away your anger. Put away your malice. Have you heard this instruction before to the church of Ephesus? You've already heard this instruction. Jesus says it to the, to the disciples. Love one another as I've loved you. Jesus wasn't furious when he was arrested. He wasn't furious. You know when he was furious? Self-righteousness with the leaders of those who were holding hostage in bondage, people who didn't fit the mold, and then taking advantage of them financially. And the only reason that that is recorded is so that we know that the prophecy that was taught of Christ, that he would have zeal for his father's house, it showed the very ones against whom he had anger that he was the very one coming in the name of the Father. And they still said, (laughs) took us 48 years to build this temple. Because they weren't given sight. Women could be angry too. Women get angry. Men get angry. So this instruction, even though it's directed in the context of men, there's a reason because he's showing the picture. Men and women, Christ in the church, elders and the body. He's going to get there. He's going to get there. 
because that's the very next thing he talks about after this is now let's talk about the elders. This is not random stuff. Paul's been given this by the Spirit of God. He's not, he's not losing his brain. He's very focused. So no anger or quarreling. Women could be angry, but let's be honest. A lot of times what we see in the context of when women are trying to get their way is they try to one-up each other, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert on women. I never thought I was. Well, I did when I was 20. I never thought I was. Never want to be. It's impossible. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's the hidden things belong to God alone. And the same thing could be said about men. We don't even know ourselves. And so Paul's not just saying, oh, men are always angry. Women aren't dressing right. He's telling all people to be humble. And he's given this picture so that we can see the gospel in it. But yet so many people who like to control other people love to take this stuff out of context, create a pretext, create an entire 62-page theology on it, and say, ha-ha, woman, shut thy mouth. Paul's not saying that, as you'll see. Prideful, blowhard, arrogance, and anger and self-righteousness is mainly a man thing. That's why every man in here was like, I could come to a prayer meeting like that. <laughs> right? The one I described earlier. But what does he say? Men, you must be quiet. You must be humble. You need to pray I, as I'm commanding you to pray. Command the men to pray as I'm telling you, Timothy, to tell them to pray. You must be lowly. You must be slaves. Who worship the Lord. All men. In the worship. Now see, Paul's not saying this is a problem. He's just saying this is what I want you to teach people in the context of these problems. I want, this is what I want done. All women are not being indicted. All men are not being indicted. Imagine for a minute the loudmouth debaters who know it all and who put the record straight or who, quote, keep it real on the false teachers. And imagine the wives of the church who are standing up for their husbands or, or, or trying to get into these quarrels or trying to get a little prideful because their husband's powerful. I don't know. I don't really have to imagine it. I've seen it in 23 years in the church. I've seen it in our congregation several times. So false teachers try to get attention, and then the angry men try to get attention, and the women try to get attention. Everybody's trying to get attention when we're supposed to be focusing on Christ. So for men, attention is pride and power. For women, it's other things. Likewise, look at that. Likewise, likewise, likewise. I desire men in every place should pray, lift and hold hands without quarreling or anger. Likewise also, in the same manner. In the same manner. So as women are praying and holy hands and all that other stuff, I also want you to understand the attitude. I've entitled this message, and I typically don't, but I entitled this message, the attitude of worship. Because it's really what it is. It's an attitude of humility and service to one another. It's an attitude of putting ourselves last so that we might be first for someone else. Women. In the same manner in which men are to be humble and quiet, spending time in prayer and learning, so the women likewise are to be humble and quiet, spending time in prayer and learning. For example, men put on their zeal, and women like to put on their pizzazz. And I know that's all a trope, but it happens. If we want attention, what do we do? 
We know how to get it. We know how to get it. Hot tempers and hot dressing can get attention. But it's not something that needs to be considered in the context of the assembly of the church. Look beautiful, people. There's nothing wrong. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being passionate. And there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. There's nothing wrong. And there's not a type of dress that matters. That's cultural and climate. It doesn't matter. What matters is the intention of the heart. And that's what Paul's getting at here. But in everything, we should be humble. Listen to what he says. Now, keep in mind, Paul is using the wives as a picture of the church, just like Jesus does, just like John does, and just like Moses did, according to God. So he's saying that the church... As the husband shuts his mouth and stops his anger and worships God in submission and humility, the wives, likewise, should be adorned with the outcome of that. They should look the part of what their husbands have done, who shut up and worshiped God and His sovereignty, who then created a church to be beautiful, to be glorious, to be pure. Have you ever heard that taught that way? Probably not. But that's the context. Adorn. Men, adorn yourselves with humility and quietness and holy hands and prayer. Women, adorn yourselves with what? Modesty and self-control. Respectable apparel. Not with braided hair, golds or pearls or costly attire. What is that showing? but for what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Modesty. Do not bring attention. Don't be proud. Be lowly. Not prudish. It's not a prescription. There's no purity in prudishness. Men, the power, the role, the knowledge. Rawr! Look at us. Be quiet. Women, the hair, the looks, the attention, the prestige, the wealth. Ah, look at us. Be quiet. Simmer down now. That's what Paul is saying. Just simmer down now. Be at peace and play the role of the picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And this is when we get together what we are to see, what we're supposed to understand. Just like the Lord's table, we remind ourselves of the body and the blood of Jesus. And when we look at one another, we remind ourselves of the work and the redemption and the lordship and the humility and the passion of Jesus. That we are His bride. Modesty, which means self-control. Don't be angry. Don't seek attention. No fighting. No debating. No fancy hair to try to draw the eye. Expensive, flashy, powerful symbols. Swoosh. I mean, you know how it is. Nothing wrong with Dressing nicely, having nice things as a steward, having the same pair of shoes for 15 years or the same shirt for 20, hoping you don't change sizes. But the point in, then Paul's saying with modesty and self-control, is good service, service to the body, service to one another, service, service, which is fitting and modest and proper. 
And then we get to this next verse, verse 11 and and on, and it just it seems like the, this beautiful Afghan that he's, that he's created. There's a string, and some well-intended old lady says, let me get that string, and she unravels the whole thing. It's like, ah, what happened? It's the same thought. The church is the bride. The church are the women. Women play the role. Men play the role. Learning with submissiveness, which is humility. Learning. Why is this important? It hasn't always been couth for a woman to learn. And sometimes in our circles today, men think the big theology camps are what learning is all about. But Paul's saying the service camps and the humility camps are where it's all about. And that women do not need to be neglected in the context of the teaching. Because the church learns. They hear the voice of her Savior. We follow after Him. We come after Him. Women play that role in the body. Let them learn. Don't make them have to stand up and and beg and, and fight. And find other ways of having a purpose. Let them learn with submissiveness, which is humility. Let them be a disciple of Christ, just as men should also be a disciple of Christ. Let women also do this. It's not about ability. It's not about worth. It's not about the world and governments and homes. This this instruction that he's given here, um, it, it has nothing to do with anything but the worship service of the saints. And the picture therein. Because in verse 11, or verse 12, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain, and I'm going to change the word there, submissive. Because it's not an instruction for, for women not to talk. But yet, I would dare to say, raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody tell you that. We'd all have our hands up. There are whole denominations that live on that premise. It's not about that. It's about the picture. Who's the greatest picture of that? Jesus Christ. When he was, look at Peter's epistles. Though he was reviled, he did not return revile with revile, but he kept quiet. He submitted himself to the one who is faithful, who the one who was sovereign, who the one who was control of all things. Oh. Wow. So this is like, Christ as well. Quiet is not about speaking. Learning with submissive is about humility. Not about what women are able or permitted to do. Women are able and commanded to share the faith. Women are able and commanded to teach the Bible. And women are commanded to admonish others and to encourage others as sisters in the faith to instruct and remind her husband of that which the scripture teaches in their home or at dinner or wherever they're in the car ride over here and the husband is also supposed to submit to his wife in the faith because the marriage picture will part when the true is with us 
quiet as like Mary in Luke chapter 10 when Martha was doing all the good serving and the doing and the doing and the doing and Mary was at the feet of Jesus listening and learning and becoming wise and effective in her faith and Jesus said she chose the better that's what Paul's talking about let the women learn and grow and be effective in the faith so we have second peter we have that there that is given to the hebrews it's not to the men only it's to the children to the saints the men and the women that our election and calling is undergirded and that we do the things that we're called to do and this command is about order the quiet there is about order and learning and growing in grace to put on worshipful hearts and display the heart of Christ, not our wealth and our privilege and our power and our control and our abilities. This is the picture of Jesus Christ, though He was God, did not take equality with God, something to be grasped. And this command here is given to Timothy, not to the men and the women. So how the elders instruct this is a delicate, patient, Opportunity of disaster. We don't have to worry about culture and everything else. And beloved, the point of all this is not to get the church in line. The point of all this is to point the church to that which is perfect. Timothy is to oversee this vital instruction of the women also, not neglecting them, and to teach the men that the women also must learn and live out the faith and service to the church just like they are too. Then why not elders? Because in the assembly, there's a picture. Remember? And a picture. Christ. The picture is Jesus. Jesus created the world as God. Life from nothing made order, called it good. Jesus created man and woman. Out of man came woman. They shared the same essence. They shared one flesh, the bride of this man given to her. Husbands are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Wives are to submit as unto the Lord just like the men are to submit to the Lord. Husbands, pastors, goodness, what a mess. I'm an elder, but I'm a sheep. I'm a husband, but I'm a bride. I have a role to play. And my wife is my closest sibling in the faith. And I must submit to her as my sister when she tells truth to me. But she does not have the, she does not have the calling to hold all this together in the picture of Christ in the church for the assembly. And you know what, beloved? Neither do all men. Jesus gave himself up. He remained quiet. He remained submissive. The church, Jesus is the head. The apostles are the planters and the writers of instruction. And we submit to these things to reveal the picture of order and life and goodness. So women, learn don't worry about the eldership, for God has ordained it in this manner for our good.
Jesus has died, and we have died with him. He lives, and we live with him. He is God, yet he accomplished redemption through submission. This is a superb picture. Men are to be humble and quiet in their attitudes and worship and submission and learning, and so should women. Men can pray in the church, and women can pray in the church. Men can read the Bible, and women can read the Bible. Children can pray and read the Bible. Men can sing and women can sing. But only qualified elders can tell the church what they must be doing and give oversight to that. And only qualified husbands can be qualified elders. Because that is the picture of Christ. Christ being the only qualified husband. Of all of us. This applies to the gathering, not the home, not work, not school. Women can teach theology in a school if they want to. They can teach the Bible in a school. That's nonsense. Paul isn't talking about seminaries. They're not even biblical. It's okay. It's not a problem. Like we have a class. It's okay. We want to do a whole series on election. That's fine too. But the assembly, the life together. See, we've got to stop thinking that church is something we attend. It's who we are. We are the gathered ones. We are the ones called out and as a part of a family are supposed to be concerned with one another. It's not, women can be governors and presidents and leaders and CEOs. The pastor's not the CEO of the church. He's not the leader of the church. He's the first slave that's going to have to give an account to God because God called him and he doesn't want it. You see? He doesn't really want it once he gets it. Like, ah, ooh. What is this? I quit. Sorry. By the command of Christ. Paul didn't want to be an apostle. He wanted to go home to be with Christ. But he loved being an apostle for the sake of Christ so that he could serve Christ's people. To live as Christ, to die is far better. But I choose to stay that I may be a benefit to you. Only elders. If anybody but a married elder, qualified, gives oversight to the church, it is disorder. And it happened in the garden. That's what happens when we do what we think is best or better. Things fall apart. When people don't submit to the instruction of the Scripture, things fall apart. And we can say all we want to. We want order. We want peace. World peace. Our peace. Life peace. We're at peace. And a piece of turd pie is what we're getting because we fail to submit to the things that God has called us to. Elders alone have the role and the burden And the picture of the order comes through qualified men who are elders. Not all men can instruct and give oversight to the church. Not every man can teach the church. Only qualified men who are given that role. Not all men could die to save the church. Only one man could die to save the church. Appointed of God and appointed to the task. The living out of the faith is not theological debate or administrative oversight or control. It is doing through service for the sake of Christ. This is the calling of the body and of the elders. And in that calling, the elders serve Christ in overseeing these things, instructing these things, and insisting upon these things. But now, some of us would say, yes, 
how do we know the elders are right? Well, the elders will do what the scripture says to do. And in that doing, they will be patient and long-suffering and gentle. And they will say, I hear what you're saying, and I understand how you got there. But let's look at what the Bible says, and let's get back to the Bible. Not, I'm the pastor around here, dummy. Do what I say. You are disqualified. In my mind, forever. The moment you say that. But by the grace of God, we can't say forever. Why is this important? Because chapter 3 is coming. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be. I'm about to have to tell you how to judge me. But before you judge me, I get to judge you, men and women. You see? Beautiful, isn't it? So now nobody gets judged and we all just love one another. God is the Savior of all types of people. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles. And none of us can establish our own righteousness. We must be given another's righteousness. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus out of which flows life for His bride. The birth of one who cannot be their own head. Thus the picture of marriage as the gospel. The oversight of the gathering as the gospel. All reflect the same picture. We are not Jesus. But we are born out of His body. Eve was born out of Adam. The church then in in both realms of grace reflects the picture of Christ. The husbands qualified serve as elders as unto Christ. The church at large, men and women, submit to Christ through the service of the elders. Thus aspiring to this role belongs to the gospel reflection of God's order, which is headship in the home, which is a picture of Christ in the church, and so on and so forth. So, therefore... The oversight and the instruction, the teaching, the correction of the church is to be done by overseers, not the men and the women of the congregation. The men and women of the congregation are to be calm and quiet, submissive. So should the elders, learners, so that they will learn the truth in doing the life of faith for the church. We're to learn application as we learn truth because it is all the doctrines of Christ. And in doing this, we do not subvert the gospel by other means. We do not subvert the order of Christ's church by other means. When Adam was in the garden and God instructed him, and then Eve went into the center of the garden and was tempted, Adam failed. How? He didn't say no. God had said. And this is what happens when God's order is not intact. It is God's purpose to show this. And left to ourselves, we will fall and we will die. And left to ourselves, our joy will be depleted. But God has established that which is good for us. When we attempt to undermine God's simple, gracious purposes, we will ultimately lose our joy and everything will fall apart, just like if we let anyone have their way outside of God's way concerning these things. In the church, we will fall away. And we are not going to let that happen. In verse 15, now we get to this incredible idea that, well, 
She, a individual woman, see he goes, Adam was formed first and Eve, the creative order, a picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ in the church. Now we live it out continually. And Adam was not deceived. He was, but he willfully disobeyed that which he knew. He was deceived in thinking, <laughs> I might be like God too. This woman of mine, I think I can do it. He blamed her for his transgression, but God wasn't going to listen to it. The woman was deceived and became the transgressor. The church is the transgressor. Christ is the head, the holy and anointed one, this picture. But yet verse 15, on which all this stuff seems to be written, yet she will be saved, the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue, then they, plural, in the faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is Paul talking about? He's going to show the gospel. He's already shown it here in the introduction. He's shown it again in the command to pray. Now in the order of good worship and praying together as the saints, he is saying that we are going to show that this is the picture of God's purpose. He's lobbing back and forth with his allusions from gospel truth to the fall, to the etc., to the first couple, to the married couples of the church, to the elders, to Christ, and everything. And so when you've read the Bible and you continue to read the Bible in its context, you begin to see how all this fits together and it becomes simple. At the first gathering in the Garden of Eden, everything fell apart by the sovereign purpose of God who revealed his graceful power, which is the seed of woman. So here, just as Moses did in Genesis, I mean, just as yeah, Moses wrote according to what God spoke to him in Genesis 3, according to what Paul has taught to us in Ephesians 5 and other places, <sighs> women like Eve are the picture of the perfect, glorious truth of God's eternal love for his church, for his people. God promised salvation through Eve's progeny, not Adam's. Think about it. The Virgin Mary, through whom Jesus was born, the Savior of the world, the creator of life, coming into the world through her, the salvation. Now, why does Paul teach it this way? Because this instruction is what the church is commanded from God to do in the midst of false teaching and divided opinions. <laughs> this is the point. Just be orderly. Elders, be orderly. Have an orderly life. Have an orderly home. Have an order. Does that mean no problems? I don't know. Just handle it orderly. Handle it peacefully. In Titus, Paul tells him to, chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. I want you to hear this. Let no one disregard you. And later on in chapter 3, he says something very similar. He says, to speak, charge them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so on and so forth. So this, this command of the elders to give oversight for the good of the church is a place of peace. So to those who will not do the things that they're told to do are going to be corrected. That means you need to do this. Please stop doing that. And that what Paul's already said? Charge them not to do this, not to speak about these things. Then teach them what is right according to these things. Be patient with them. But those who will not do this are going to be corrected. If they're not corrected, if anyone, in the sense, no matter their own personal theological ideas or what they think they're going to tell God that they're going to do, 
they don't obey, they're going to be put out until they do obey. Or they're going to leave of their own accord and then they're going to be put out for abandonment. Order is the point of the gospel in the context of the local assembly. Order points to the gospel is what I should have said. God made all things. He put them in order and he upholds them by the word of his power. This is the point and the purpose of this teaching. This is how you read the Bible in context. You read it and you read it and you read it and read it. How many times have I read Timothy in the last 30 weeks? I can't tell you. It's an all-day journey. You'd think I'd have it memorized by now, but I keep going, oh, what is that? I have to go back. I want to hear it. I want to read it. I want to see it. Grace Truth Church will not tolerate abuse in the church. And to subvert the precious gospel of Christ is abuse. To refuse instruction and teaching is abuse. And the elders of the church will not tolerate but we will be intolerant patiently, lovingly, and gently. So that Christ's instruction to His people will bring us orderly worship, orderly discipline, and the most beautiful thing is reconciliation. Because that's what the gospel is, is a letter, is a story, is a power of reconciliation. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and for the teaching. And God, as you know, I'm no expert. Father, all the years of learning and grammar and all sorts of things, Father, there's so much junk that I have dogmatically stood upon without ever testing to see if that's what your word says. And so I thank you for loving me graciously to teach me patience to teach me how to love the sheep more and more to teach me how to love my family and my wife that I might also help instruct the body to do the same and so Lord help us to be at peace for there is no cause for alarm and aggression hate and misogyny there's no cause for any of these things in the body of Christ and if we would all learn the humility of submission as a picture of grace then we would be far better off in our own minds, in our own thoughts in our own emotions So, Lord, I pray for us now as we take the table to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who you crushed to bring order, to bring life to a dead and disorderly people. In Jesus' name, amen.